Acts chapter 2. Are you excited? (laughs) When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, the Medes, Elamites, The residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. (laughs) But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. It's only nine in the morning. But at this is what is uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite, excuse me, to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption." 
You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 2 recounts one of the greatest moments in history. It ranks up there with, you know, like Noah in the flood, right? I mean, it ranks up there with uh, Moses and, and the plagues and the escape from Egypt, but then the Red Sea. It ranks up there, of course, with Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. It's one of the greatest moments in history And the disciples were there to see it happen. This moment in history has had a profound impact on Western culture, on Christian theology, and on the individual lives of billions of people. And as highlighted by Peter, this moment is the moment that the promise was fulfilled. The promise of the prophets, but also the promise of Jesus himself in John 14, 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. What Jesus had told the disciples 10 days earlier to wait for had finally come. The Spirit had arrived And he came in the powerful sound of a rushing wind and licks of fire that came and rested on them and supernatural utterance. It poured forth onto the disciples of God, disciples of Jesus, 
who had been waiting with anxious anticipation. Imagine if you were part of the 120. Imagine if that was you. And, and Jesus has just ascended to heaven and you receive the instructions to stay in Jerusalem and to wait for the baptism. But while you're there, there's some, there's some images in history of, of what is this ba- baptism of the Spirit? I mean, I mean, think about it. I mean, Jesus says, wait for the Spirit. Well, how do we know what that's going to look like when it comes? Perhaps they thought about Moses and some of the things that happened there, or maybe David and his slaying of the giant and different things, but, but maybe, you know, what was it? What is it exactly going to look like? They didn't know. They had no idea, no way of really knowing, but more importantly, importantly they didn't, also didn't know when it was going to happen. Imagine 10 days. I mean, I would have expected if I was one of them, Jesus ascends and says, go to Jerusalem and wait for my spirit. Okay, cool. Like, I'm thinking like, you know, the next day, right? Maybe even that night, right? It's like, it's, it's, we're ready. Let's go. Ten days between the time of Jesus' ascension and this day when the spirit comes. And now it's the Jewish feast of Pentecost. Fifty days after the Passover celebration. And they're there together in prayer. This feast, which was given to them by God in the days of Moses, was meant to celebrate the first fruits of their harvest. They came together to offer thanksgiving to God for his provision and to ask him to continue to protect the rest of the harvest to come. They would offer two loaves of bread Also, they would offer unblemished lambs, and they would worship God. But Pentecost was also another important time. It was a time that commemorated the day when Jesus came down off of Mount Sinai with the law, the giving of the law. It was a day of feasting, of fellowship, a day of laughter. It was a day of worship. It was a day of sacrifice. And because of this feast, Jerusalem would have been bursting at the seams with lots of different people involved and lots of people there. There would be Jews from all the surrounding towns and cities. And then they would be there in, in jubilant uh, uh, religious celebration. And it was in this joyous and holy occasion that the promise is fulfilled. <laughs> During the disciples' preparatory prayer that morning. The building shook, and so did their souls. The sound of roaring wind burst upon them, and a bright flame sparked over their heads, and its heat burning through them from head to toe. Their hearts quickened, and their bodies were energized. They rushed out of their prayer room to testify to their experience with the risen Lord and the coming of the Holy Spirit. But when they opened their mouths, strange words pour forth. At first confused by the encounter, then mocked by some who heard the babbling, Peter finally steps forward and draws attention to the, the attention of the gathering crowd. In that moment, the Spirit inspires the mind and voice of Peter to not only know, but to proclaim with boldness the truth of what they are all were witnessing. Reminding, the Spirit reminded him of the words of the prophets, the words of David, and the words of his resurrected Lord. 
And as a result, 3,000 souls came into the kingdom that day. The meaning and purpose of this amazing and powerful historical event is actually highly debated. (laughs) On the extreme is either the attempt to make the experiential details of this narrative normative for all or only for the first century Christians. On the other hand, they are some that strive to coerce a false movement for that movement to be repeated or seek to squelch subsequent authentic movements. In preparation for this message today, I've felt the tension this week that I think exists even within our congregation. I think this is especially relevant for us as a small church located just a few miles away from a megachurch that seems to glorify experience above everything. As I've recently begun preaching on revival and asking for the Spirit to manifest in new and wonderful ways, some of us are struggling to embrace that message. And quite simply because of the fear of becoming like Bethel. While the intellectuals among us remain hesitant, there are others of us who are desperate for experience, no matter the source. There's a push in them to use whatever means necessary in order to create a movement of the Spirit. And my recent messages on revival have excited them, but they are wanting me to go further. They are wanting me and our church to be dragged into an ocean of emotion. So how do I preach a message on Acts chapter 2? Where a portion of our church is looking with a critical eye and another portion is expecting a powerful movement. How do I appease the intellectuals and the emotionals? How do I assuage the fears of the one and rise up to the great expectations of the other? Honestly, I can't do it. (laughs) It's impossible. But this week as I was preparing, this thought came to me, this remembrance of Jesus when he's with his disciples after the rich young ruler walked away sad. Jesus said these words, with man, this is impossible, but with God, (laughs) all things are possible. Lord, come and speak to our hearts. Spirit, come and move among us. Amen. Amen. It seems to me the keys to understanding what happened in this event in Acts 2 is in focusing on the three phenomena that Luke described. Of course, the sound of the mighty rushing wind, the tongues of fire resting on them, and then speaking in other tongues. And like so much of the New Testament, our ability to understand what the New Testament is saying comes through an awareness and understanding of what happened in the Old Testament. So we need to understand these three phenomenon, not just from their context in Acts chapter 2 and the rest of the New Testament, but also the, the meanings that we see that come before them in the Old Testament. 
So let's start with the mighty wind. You likely know that a wind, the wind, is throughout Scripture symbolic or kind of represents the Spirit of God. Right? The breath of God breathed into the nostrils of Adam in Genesis 2. The strong east wind that parted the Red Sea for the Israelites was, again, the work of the Spirit. The calm whisper that spoke to Elijah in his moment of uh, fear, in his fearful state, was, again, the Spirit. And then we also see in John chapter 3, I believe we have this passage above. <clears throat> Read it real quickly if it is there. John 3. There it is. The wind blows. Jesus says the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So Jesus describes the life of those who are born of the spirit being like the wind, which blows wherever it wishes. But more than that, the wind being symbolic of the spirit. We see that with the spirit is the presence and the power of God. Whether a whisper or a, where, a roar, the coming of the Spirit represents the coming of God's presence and power. Well, these symbols, with these symbols in view, we understand that the wind symbolically represents the Spirit of God. The Spirit fell on the disciples. The Spirit came into that room. He didn't just dwell in the room, but he entered into the very hearts, very souls, their very lives. And that represented the power and the presence of God. But there's another piece of this that we cannot ignore. And it's when the Spirit came. It is not an accident that the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost. It's not an accident that it took 10 days for the Spirit to finally arrive after Jesus' ascension. There was a point that Jesus was making. There's a point that God was making. He came at, the, at Pentecost because Pentecost was the feast, the celebration of first fruits, the first uh, reaping of the harvest. And we see even in this passage, the first reaping of a harvest that comes of 3,000 souls after Paul or Peter preaches, right? And so we see that uh, we have to understand that this wind that's coming, it, the spirit that's coming, the presence and power of God that came, came on Pentecost on purpose so that we would recognize that the spirit's coming and his presence and power with us was not just so that we could feel good about ourselves. The Spirit comes to empower us to be able to see what Jesus is doing and to join him in his work. We need to recognize that he desires a harvest. See, uh, the Pentecost feast was talking about a physical harvest of food, but it represented and symbolized a greater harvest that Jesus desired, and that was the harvest of souls, that we would be able to join him in reaping the many people that would come to the Lord in that day, right? So we have to understand when the spirit comes, he comes with a mighty rushing wind. The presence and the power of God is with him, but he comes for a purpose. Again, not just to make us feel good, not just to give us warm fuzzies or tinglies, but to be able to use us for his glory to build his kingdom. Yes. Well, certainly this event was a powerful and emotional experience. And it had to have been a great encouragement to the disciples, emboldening them for sure. 
But to think that that was the main reason for Jesus' work in them is foolishness. The presence and the power of spirit is certainly to bless them, but, was, but it was also to empower them to be witnesses. For those, of you, for those of us who are willing to open our minds, hearts, and bodies to a fresh anointing of the spirit, we must accept that a genuine movement, an authentic revival whether individual or corporate, will ignite a passion for the lost and an empowerment to share the gospel. That doesn't exclude emotions, healings, or supernatural expressions, but that the point of those experiences is to reap a harvest. The next phenomenon is the tongues of fire that come and rest upon the disciples. Again, we turn to the Old Testament to figure out what do tongues of fire mean, or more specifically, uh, yeah, tongues, excuse me, I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. What do tongues of fire represent? Quite simply, fire oftentimes in the Old Testament represents holiness. Sacrifices to God were set aside and burned on an altar by holy fire. God's people were purified, purified by fire. And God's holiness was poured out on evil as a consuming fire. Indeed, Mount Sinai was aflame when God met with Moses. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 13, instructs us to build on the foundation of Jesus with materials that won't burn up in purifying flames of holiness. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be, become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. So we see in the Old Testament, fire represents holiness. But again, the timing of this fire coming and resting upon the disciples matters. It is given at Pentecost. Why? Because it was at this feast that the giving of the law was commemorated. It was on this day that Moses came down off the mountain with the stone tablets where the law of the Lord was written. And what did the law represent? None other than the way for the people of God to be holy. Obey the law and be holy. Disobey the law and you are unrighteous, filthy, evil, and you will face God's judgment. Of course, the people of God over and over again throughout history have failed at keeping the law. But this is the great news of the New Testament and even of this passage today. Praise the Lord, Jesus came and he fulfilled the law for us. And thereby making a way for both Jew and Gentile to be holy. Not because of our own righteous works, but because of the righteous works of Jesus. We can experience holiness today, not because we've been obedient to the law, but because we have bowed our knee to Jesus as Lord and we have put our faith in him. 
Because of sin, God made another way. And he promised that someday, instead of the law being written in stone, he would write the law on our hearts. As we read in beginning Jeremiah chapter 31. And how did he do that? He writes the law on our heart by pouring out his spirit on all who put their faith in Jesus. Paul even drives home this point in Galatians 3, 11 to 14. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather. The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us for the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. For those of us who recognize the depth of our depravity and the utter futility of striving for true holiness through our own effort, there is hope. It is in repentance we receive what is imp- we receive what is impossible to achieve. It is in surrendering our life that we receive life. It is in faith and trust in Jesus that we are baptized by the Spirit and are made holy. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we are purified from all unrighteousness and we are empowered to join Jesus in living out his righteousness. The final phenomena the disciples experienced was the outward sign of their inward transformation. The previous two experiences were, you know, a sound that they kind of heard and then the the, the fire, tongues of fire that fell on them that they could see, but the, the inward stuff that was going on was revealed by this the speaking in different languages. Languages that they hadn't learned. And their fellow Jews, of course, were stunned by this, wouldn't you? And they even tried to explain it away. But But Peter steps in, filled with the Spirit, and explains that, no, this is something more. That this is what we've been waiting for. According to Joel, right, this is that moment when the Spirit is being poured out on all flesh. But the question has to be asked, why did the Spirit empower them to speak in other languages? Why not some other sign? Again, we look, I think, to the Old Testament for the answers. We see over and over again that tongues in the Old Testament is a point of division among the people. So the different tribes spoke different languages so that they, you know, kind of set them aside. So they knew. So all the different people groups had different languages. And, you know, if you said somebody that spoke your language, you would probably more easily trust them. Someone who didn't speak your language, you're kind of a little bit offsetting. You know, I'm not sure about this, right? And so we see that languages throughout history is actually a point of division. This is driven home quite clearly in Genesis chapter 11, right? We all know the Tower of Babel story, right? Where the people are all in one accord, all have one language, and they're building this temple to do something great, man. They're going to make a name for themselves. And God steps in and confuses their language. And in confusing their language, it divides them. It separates them. It breaks them apart. So God... The Holy Spirit coming 
and manifesting by the, individual, by the individual disciples being able to speak in other languages, by the Spirit giving them supernatural ability to speak in the native tongues of Jews from various locations, it was a sign of the Holy Spirit bringing the people together. The baptism of the Spirit brought a healing of the dividing lines between tribes. In essence, the indwelling of the Spirit brings peace and reconciliation. We see in this chapter a reversing of the curse of the Tower of Babel. God first comes and, and divides them with language. Now he comes back and he unites them with language. But there's more. Again, the coming of the Spirit on Pentecost suggests another important imagery. As mentioned earlier, one of the sacrifices made in worship on Pentecost was two loaves of bread. Those two loaves of bread representing two people groups, two main people groups, Jews and Gentiles. Each loaf is given in honor of the initial fruits of har harvest. The initial pouring out of the Spirit was to be a harvest of both Jews and Gentiles. The Spirit manifesting by giving the disciples the power to speak in tongues is a clear proclamation that salvation is for every tribe and tongue. Again, the point of Joel's prophecy is not just to celebrate the corporate outpouring of the Spirit, but to accept his unifying power. All who bow their knee to Jesus receive the same Spirit, the same Spirit of power. As Paul says in Galatians 3, 27 to 29, For as many of you who, as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I'm struck by the irony of this third phenomenon. This historical event that sparked the unification of all people in the family of God has become one of the great points of division in modern-day church. Amen. Intellectuals judge and isolate themselves from those who seek and enjoy greater experiences, while at the same time those more in tune with emotions judge and isolate themselves from those who seek tangible and concrete expressions of truth. Of course, the first century church certainly struggled with this as well. Well, certainly what we see in throughout the book of Acts, the conflict that arises of accepting Gentiles into the kingdom of God. But these divisions and conflicts should not be. All who have received the Spirit should worship together in perfect unity. When the Spirit falls upon us, we should find ourselves drawn into greater community with our brothers and sisters in Christ. The family of God denies the hierarchies and dividing lines of our culture. We worship alongside people from all walks of life. Bosses worship in unity with their employees. Parents standing beside their children. Those with beautiful, spacious homes harmonizing with the homeless. 
The Calvinist with the Arminian, the premillennial with the postmillennial, the liberal hand in hand with the conservative, the intellectual alongside the emotional. The powerful work of the Spirit erases dividing lines of hostility, not just between us and our Creator, but also between us and our fellow believers. The coming of the Spirit empowers us to join Jesus in the harvest of many souls. It brings purity to our heart and to our life, and it unites the church in harmony. The question is, are you filled with the Spirit? Now, I want to be careful. I don't, my, my intention of asking this question is not to make you doubt your salvation. We all receive the Holy Spirit at the moment we are saved. See that in Ephesians 1.13, of course. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We all should have confidence that if we have confessed our sin and trust Jesus for our salvation, then the powerful spirit of Jesus lives within us. This initial work of regeneration is often seen or called the baptism of the Spirit. All Christians have been baptized with the Spirit. While every believer has the full presence of the Spirit at all times, to be filled with the Spirit means that we are living in accordance with the Spirit. In other words, we are allowing the Spirit to do His work in and through us. We are seeing the work of Jesus and being empowered to join Him. We are enjoying deeper repentance and living out more fully the righteousness of Jesus. We are being drawn into greater intimacy and unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, which reads, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with spirit. Paul is not calling Christ's followers here to be saved. He is calling Christians to live their lives according to the Spirit. So back to the question. Are you filled with the Spirit? Yes, certainly you've been baptized and regenerated by the Spirit, but does the Spirit have control of your life? This filling of the Spirit often is something we experience throughout our life. It can be a process. It can also happen all in a moment, suddenly. And it can happen corporately. The process is a process of maturity. The reality is there are some things that we will never learn about God and our relationship with him and who he is and who we are until we've just, you know, lived a certain amount of life. So there's a process of us being filled with the spirit that happens throughout our life as we continue to mature and grow and understand. But there's also moments that it happens suddenly. Perhaps you've experienced that as well. You're at a conference or a retreat, or maybe you're just at home and you're having a morning time of prayer and you're crying out to Jesus. And then all of a sudden, a new perspective comes, a new truth comes, or a new experience comes. And you go, oh my gosh, this changes everything. And you will forever look back at that moment in time and say, God changed me in that moment. The spirit showed up in that moment and I was filled in a mighty and powerful and beautiful way. And we wish it would continue forever, but it doesn't. It just happens and then it's done. And then some of us, maybe, maybe you've experienced a filling of the Spirit corporately. We often can call this revival or awakenings. 
But it doesn't have to be an awakening or so big that the whole world sees. I know I've had experiences a couple times with just my community, whether it be in a youth group that I was leading or a youth group that I was in, where all of a sudden the Holy Spirit came and we all felt a movement of the Spirit. We all were ignited and had an experience or new truths that we learned. And it changed us. Have you experienced that? These are the ways that we can be filled with the Spirit through a process, through a sudden movement of the Spirit in us, or through a corporate movement as well. It's important to note that a progressive or a sudden or a corporate filling of the Spirit are never forced on Christians. Perhaps you were in a moment when there was a corporate outpouring of the Spirit and you missed out. Perhaps it had nothing to do do with you. But perhaps you didn't get to enjoy what was going on because you were resistant to the Spirit. You were resistant to whatever was happening. Resistant to what you felt like He was telling you to do. Resistant to what He was calling you into. The reality is, is the Spirit is not going to force Himself on us. We must want it. We must ask for it. We must be open to it. I've experienced the Lord, I think, more profoundly in the last 10 years of my life than all the years previously. Not because I'm great. But there was one thing that I've noticed that I changed about 10 years ago in my life. And that was I stopped coming to Jesus for him to fix things or to do things for me. And I started coming to Jesus just to be with him. I think so much of our prayer life is spent with Jesus fix this, Jesus fix that, and it's okay for us to take our cares to him. We should. But if there is not a portion of our prayer time that doesn't start with Jesus, I just want to be with you. Yeah. As, uh, as uh, Robert Reamer puts it, spiritual authority, he says, I stopped going to prayer in search of God's hands. Instead, went in search of his face. May we spend substantial amount of time in prayer seeking the face of God. Because it's when we know who he is, know that he is there, know and, and recognize his presence with us, that everything else in life is taken care of. We step out of that room, that holy tent of meeting, if you will, and we walk into the world, and the, and the Spirit is with us. He is moving and going before us. It doesn't matter how horrible our life is in the moment if we know that Jesus is there and if we've seen his face. It doesn't matter what we've lost. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter the pain. It doesn't matter the suffering. If we know Jesus is with us, we are good. We're okay. We can make it. He will empower us, and we will feel amazing about it. Because that's what he does. So the question is, do you want the Holy Spirit? Are you asking for the Holy Spirit? Are you open to the Spirit? Or are you just constantly going to him and trying to make him happy? Trying to, trying to get him to do something. Manipulate him to do it your way. You know, pray that prayer over and over and over again. Just beat him up so that he will do it your way and not his way. Or do you just come and say, God, just have your way. Whatever that looks like. Church, are you filled with the Spirit? Okay, worship team, come forward. Do you really want to be filled? <clears throat> Do you need him? Or are you comfortable living your life under your own power? Are you able to live a pretty moral life on your own? 
Christianity in America is known, I, I don't remember, maybe somebody knows the author. I forgot to look it up before my message, sorry. Uh, 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 Christianity, some Christians in America have a moralistic, therapeutic deism that they live. In other words, they just try to live out a really good, you know, I, I live a pretty moral life, and so that means, you know, I, I'm good. Therapeutic, oh God, you know, he just makes me feel good about myself. And then deism, we don't actually expect that he's going to do anything in our life. Deism means that, you know, God just, he created all this and then he's, he's not engaged. He's not a part of what's going on. If the spirit showed up, would he put a monkey wrench in your plans? Do you want the spirit, but are attempting to dictate how he can come? Are there certain areas of your life that are off limits? certain experiences you're not willing to participate in? Are you asking the Spirit to fill you afresh? Are you open to whatever the Spirit wants to do? Are you seeking His face and His will? Church, just like the first century church, we can expect that when we are filled with the Spirit, three awesome phenomena will result. First, we will receive power to see where Jesus is working to build and strengthen his kingdom, and we will be empowered to join Jesus in engaging in authentic relationships with the lost. Second, we will be convicted of our sin, inspired to repentance, and given the power to know and enjoy more fully the truth of righteousness we've received from Jesus. And third, we will be humbled to know and embrace and journey alongside all God's people, no matter who they are. The coming of the Holy Spirit is one of the greatest moments in their life, in the history of our world, but also in our own life. It should be a time you remember for the rest of your life. And how he chooses to manifest shouldn't be a point of division for us. May we all seek to be filled with the Spirit and pray that our brothers and sisters in Christ will be filled as well. Not judging or being jealous of their experience, but accepting however the Spirit chooses to manifest in them and in us. May the Spirit come in power and empower us to evangelize, to empower us into righteousness and empower us into unity in worship. Amen. Heavenly Father, have your way among us. Lord, we come to seek your face for your will to be done. Lord, for you to pour out and manifest however you desire. Lord, at your timing. <laughs> Not in the disciples' timing right after. Come on. Not in uh, a time when we, we think it's convenient. But Lord, may you do it in your timing when you feel it's right. And Lord, allow us just the great privilege of being blessed by filling of your spirit again today. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 4 and following. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. 
For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions in each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body through many though many are one body so it is with Christ in Jesus name amen God bless church if you would like prayer for healing or if you're just feeling a stirring in your heart for the Lord to work and to to fall fresh on you and would like someone to pray with you we would love to pray alongside you so come forward for prayer God bless have a great week